Jesus' first coming was humble. It was quiet. It was unassuming. He did not even occupy a hospital room or a crib on the night of his birth. As we see the angelic choirs lighting up the night with songs of praise announcing his birth, as dramatic as that was, that announcement to the shepherds pasturing their sheep outside of Bethlehem that night, it was, after all, an announcement to but a few simple shepherds. For centuries, God's people awaited the coming of the promised Messiah. But when he finally came, he slipped so quietly into their presence that only a few people welcomed him. His coming was so quiet that when wise men from the east arrived in Palestine and began to inquire about the location of his birth and who he was, even King Herod in that small nation had not heard of who Jesus was or where he lived. Jesus was safely embedded among peasants in lowly Palestine. By all estimations, the first coming of Jesus was remarkably unassuming. But the second coming of Jesus will be an entirely different affair. We gather as God's people at a time in salvation history when we find ourselves once again waiting for Messiah to come. But the Jesus that we await has conquered death. He has risen from the grave. He has ascended into heaven. And when he comes again, he will return in power and great glory to rule the earth. How privileged we are to stand where we do today on this place in the timeline of salvation history and to watch for Jesus with confidence. The Israelites who awaited Messiah's first coming did not understand that the prophecies concerning Christ's suffering and the prophecies concerning his reign would find fulfillment in two distinct installments. But standing where we do today, we anticipate the coming of a Savior whom we know. He is a Savior whose face we have seen. His glory dwelt here among us. He is the Messiah whom we love. As we await his return, we stake our hope on two realities. Putting the thoughts together today with last week, the first reality is this. Jesus is reigning in heaven today in preparation for his future earthly rule. Jesus is reigning in heaven today in preparation for his future earthly rule. He is not on ice. He is working. He is ruling and let me break that thought into several pieces here. First of all, the ascended Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. This we established last week. For those that were not with us, and for our repetition and learning, let me repeat just these verses. Peter said, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. Acts 2.33. Peter again, he has gone into heaven and is at the Father's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 1 Peter 3.22. The author of Hebrews says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 1.3. Hebrews 8.1. We have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
The ascended Jesus announces to the seven churches of Asia Minor, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 3 and verse 21. The ascended Christ is seated at the father's right hand. Secondly, the father's right hand is a position of ruling authority. The point of these verses is not to pinpoint Jesus' location as if it's some comfort of, for us to know that Jesus sits on his right hand and not on his left hand, or not on some other throne in some other place. That's clearly not the point of it. You noted that there when Jesus says to the, all those who overcome, you will sit with me on my throne. We're not going to all share one seat, the numbers of people that have overcome, obviously. It's not meant in a literal way in that sense. To sit at the Father's right hand is a position of authority. Sitting next to the king means that you share his rule and authority. And as indicated by the apostles, repeatedly, repeatedly appealing to Psalm 110, David's greater son has been seated at God's right hand as David's Lord and reigns with absolute authority. So Jesus is at the Father's right hand, which is a position of authority. And Jesus' rule thirdly in heaven is transitional in nature. Now, we caught this last week in the passages that we looked at, but I'd like to dig further into this point here today. Jesus' rule in heaven is transitional in nature. He is the absolute sovereign of the universe. But it is not all that it will be, Jesus' rule. We see this emphasis in a number of New Testament texts. I invite you to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13. Jesus is doing something in heaven, in his rule. We read here in Hebrews 1 and verse 13, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Again, an appeal to Psalm 110. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet indicates that the enemies of Jesus currently exercise rebellious power that they will someday lose. So Jesus already reigns supreme over the rulers of the earth, and he has defeated Satan. Revelation 1.5, Luke 10.18, John 12 and verse 31. He has defeated Satan. He rules over the powers of the earth. But Satan and his children have not yet been eliminated. They still operate a war of rebellion against Christ for now. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. We look again at Peter's second recorded sermon. And I'd like to lift out of that sermon just this idea of the transitional nature of Jesus' reign in heaven. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Jesus had just left. Peter had just recently seen Jesus ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives, and he says, repent and come to Christ that he may come again. And notice verse 21. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. The restoration 
of which the prophets spoke was a restoration of the kingdom to Israel, which included the reign of Messiah on David's throne. That is what the prophets prophesied. There really can be no other idea that is supplied here. That day will come, but until it does, Jesus will continue to reign in heaven. And while he does, people on earth are given this window of opportunity to repent of their sin and to receive from Jesus the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remembering last week, he indicates from heaven's throne his power and his reign as he pours out his spirit, baptizing those who come to saving faith in Christ. He is reigning as he pours out these salvation benefits. But now, Peter says, it is time to repent, that times of refreshing may come, that the kingdom may be restored, that Jesus would rule on David's throne. In fact, that Jesus would come back, that he would be sent by God here again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul fleshes this idea out further we noted it in just a slightly different context last week. Let's return there to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, that is, Jesus the first one to conquer death by rising from the grave. Then, when he comes... Those who belong to him. That is, at Christ's return, those who are his own will enter the resurrection life. Then, verse 24, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So there's a process here. Jesus rises first. Then Jesus comes back. He brings with him his people into the resurrection life. But there's more to come. Jesus reigning in his kingdom will bring under control all rebellion. The end will come. He will turn the kingdom over to the Father. 4, verse 25, He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. His reign is now. His reign will be in the millennial kingdom, putting all enemies under His feet. So again, we see something of an already not yet situation. Death has already been defeated by Jesus when He conquered the grave. But death has not yet been fully subdued. People are dying as we are here this morning. Death continues its reign. He's beat it. He's defeated it. He has conquered death. But that conquest is still being fulfilled. And he will fulfill it. Not until the end of Christ's millennial rule will this conquest of death be entirely complete. But that day is coming, and it hinges on the return of Jesus Christ. So, first of all, Jesus is reigning in heaven today in preparation for his future earthly rule. Secondly, and connected to that, Jesus will return to rule on earth. We have seen that in these texts. I'd like to look at others to establish that clear point. But we find, first of all, that the return of Christ is evidenced in the Old Testament prophets. Now, we read them differently. Now that Jesus has come in his first coming, we look at those texts a bit differently. But they do foretell a time when Jesus will rule on earth over the nations of the earth. 
So the prophets of Israel prophesied that Messiah would restore Israel, and he has not yet done that. They prophesied the suffering as well as the victory of Messiah, but they did not grasp that Messiah would suffer in his first coming and reign in a second coming. Despite their lack of perception concerning these two comings, the prophets boldly declared that Jesus would reign on earth. We turn again to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. This is such a stark concept. We turn back to this stark statement of Christ's reign. We turn back to this Old Testament prophetic light in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. Just a few moments on this verse as we looked at it last week. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Now the giving of this glory, authority, and sovereign power indicates that the Ancient of Days is God. God comes into no one's presence to gain authority. The Ancient of Days, in a very fitting description, is God the Father. And this one, this Son of Man, is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Notice the effect of this power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So it is right to say, that Jesus has already been given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. The author of Hebrews made that precise statement that we read earlier. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him, past tense, the name that is above every name. So it is right for us to look at Jesus as the exalted Christ reigning in heaven. But Daniel 7 and verse 14 also mentions this idea. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Now, some could take this as merely a heavenly concept, but the Jews did not read their Bibles that way. And I think they read it properly. This aspect of Daniel's prophecy has clearly not been fulfilled. Right now, only a small percentage of people across this globe worship Jesus, but a new day will dawn. We looked at it in Isaiah 9, and let's return to it there. Again, I'm looking at just very pointed statements that bring out these ideas, memorable text to link the idea of Christ's return to, but we can say certainly that the Bible, the Old Testament, indicates this over and over again, but how clearly we see it here in Isaiah chapter 9. We'll go to verse 6, having read the first five verses earlier. The prophet says, remember, this is a prophecy. This comes way before Jesus Christ. It's an amazing prophecy. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In this great prophecy of hope, Isaiah foretells a day when Israel's judgment by God will give way to a day of glory and light. And the cause of that revival is what? 
The cause of that revival in Israel's experience is a child. The child is the source of it. You notice the word, it helps us here in the English translation, that the verse starts with the word for. There is a connection to this light that will dawn, to this day of forgiveness that will come. The reason it will come is that a child will be born for. A child will be born. He is the cause of the renewal. He will be born to us. That is, he will be an Israelite. This child, this son, this one born of a woman will be given four descriptive names. Think of that. That just slips right past us in our day. This son who will be born will be called the mighty God. It's an amazing prophecy for those who had never seen Jesus Christ. He will be called the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. We must conclude that this son is both human and divine. He will be born a son, and he will be called the everlasting father. How easy that is for us, isn't it? We hear that in the Messiah. We read that at this time of year. We hear it in songs. This son who is born David's child and the everlasting father. And it's just a point of joy and a point of warmth to us. But how mysterious this must have been for Isaiah. A child is born who will be called the everlasting father. I think this is a good text to illustrate the Old Testament prophecies as they merge the two comings of Christ. And notice verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Bringing together these two comings of Christ, but seen as one here. Anyone reading this passage in Isaiah's day would naturally assume the child is born, grows to adulthood, and reigns on David's throne. That's how you would read it. From our perspective, we realize that what they were seeing was essentially two mountain peaks in the distance that looked like one mountain. But now that we've come to those two peaks, we stand in between them and we realize that they're very far apart. At this point, some 2,000 years, and time is still passing. We realize that the child who was born was Christ's first coming, and that his government that will be established will be at his second coming. Jesus did not rule on David's throne literally during his lifetime that prophecy will come true. From our perspective, we realize these two peaks, and we realize that the second has not yet come to be. The followers of Jesus did not abandon this prophetic vision, let me stress. When the apostles saw the ministry of Jesus and they saw him ascend into heaven, they did not abandon these promises as if they would not come to be but rather they witness that he will come again to establish his kingdom. And we notice this in an interesting way as Luke recounts a conversation with Jesus, with the disciples and Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. And when I say Jesus here, we're not talking about Jesus pre-death and resurrection. We're talking about the risen Christ. 
Now put that together in your mind as you're thinking in salvation history terms. Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, he has not yet ascended, and the disciples are having a conversation with him. And they say to him what seems to be the most obvious question they could possibly ask in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They know Jesus is Messiah. They know what the Old Testament prophets have said. Jesus will establish his kingdom and all nations on earth will be submissive to him. Jesus, what's left? You've defeated death. You've risen from the grave. Are you not now going to set up your kingdom? It's a good question. But Jesus answers in a way that is confusing, I'm sure, to the disciples at this point. He says in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. I guess being translated, that's something like, that is not your concern right now. And he goes on to give them what their concern should be. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you think about that real carefully, Jesus is saying, I'm not coming back right away, right? You will be my witnesses throughout the world. Will you set up your kingdom now? That's not your concern. Your concern is to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the globe. That's your concern. Jesus isn't laying out for them a precise timeline here, but he is indicating that he will not establish his rule yet at this point. Now what's so intriguing here is to see how the knowledge of the disciples develops so quickly as Jesus does ascend into heaven. At his ascension, which takes place here in this chapter, from that point the disciples realize it's a little different world than they had anticipated. And we go back then to chapter 3, just to remember, in Peter's sermon at verse 21, Jesus, he says, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his prophets. Peter is not throwing aside all of the Old Testament prophecies. He's just saying, God's on his own time frame here, people. We thought we knew what it was. It seemed to make perfect sense to us, but he's got his own timetable. What's important is that you repent. He's doing exactly what Jesus said to do. He's proclaiming the gospel where he is so that they will respond in repentance and go throughout the world and proclaim that same gospel. When Jesus comes, I don't know. He will remain in heaven until it's time. But here's the glorious truth for us as we await that return. There will be a time. That day will come. You notice here in verse 21, I'd like you just to pick out two ideas here. First of all, this restoration that is prophesied in Scripture involves, first of all, the return of Jesus Christ to earth. Do you notice how he says that so carefully there? He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his prophets. How is he going to do that? Verse 20, that he may send the Christ. If Christ has come merely in spirit, 
If Christ has come merely to indwell the hearts of his people through salvation, which he has, then why is Peter talking about Jesus coming? I don't think he is talking about Jesus coming into their hearts, so to speak. He's talking about the restoration of all things, and here's the second point, prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. So it involves the return of Christ, and it involves the fulfillment of what the prophets said. Jesus will come back again. And this is precisely what Jesus himself said. Remember Luke chapter 21. I'll read it if you'd like to turn there, verse 25. Luke chapter 21 and verse 25. Remembering what Jesus said at this place in his sermon dealing with last things. Jesus also prophesied his coming. We're going to go to Acts 1 in a moment, but Luke chapter 21 and verse 25. Remember, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies shall be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He will come in a cloud with power and great glory. Acts chapter 1 and verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. How he has gone into heaven, he will come back. Jesus said it. The angels declare it. The apostles preach it. Jesus will come again. The most vivid description of this glorious return in power is found in the 19th chapter of Revelation. And I invite you there. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. The way in which the enemies of Christ are subdued while he reigns in heaven is not by a slow process of extinguishing evil. There, in fact, are theologies that tend to work just in that way and have the idea that the kingdom is advancing and slowly, little by little, God is squashing the resistance here on earth to the point where someday the kingdom will be here. Little by little, progress to that end. I think Jesus rules in a very different way than that. His subduing of his enemies involves the growing of evil and the development of their rebellion against him. He will extinguish it not little by little, he will extinguish it in a climactic return. As we look around our world, we do not expect in our understanding of Scripture that the world will continue to grow better and better, but that things will grow from bad to worse as the rebellion continues to gain steam. 
That rebellion has gained steam in the book of Revelation with the rise of the Antichrist in the great city of Babylon that seduces the nations of the world in rebellion against the true Christ. But in chapter 18 of Revelation, that city of Babylon and its power over the world begins to crumble. In fact, crumbles. It falls apart. The city falls and its power over the nations crumbles. And in Revelation 18, the rule of Antichrist and his cohorts falls apart. At 19.1, then, we hear a heavenly choir exulting in worship as Christ readies himself to return to earth. This is the glorious day. It is now coming, and we read of it in verse 11. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The rider is clearly Jesus Christ. Verse 13, or verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. This is no unassuming coming. This is no quiet return. He comes with armies this time. And out of his mouth, verse 15, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, with an iron scepter. He, treats the wine, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It is simply not in my capacities to read this as an example of the spread of the gospel, which some do. This is the gospel conquering nations. This isn't the gospel conquering nations. This is the ruling Jesus conquering nations. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, strikes down nations with the sword of his mouth, I suppose we could turn that to be, some way, the conquest of the gospel, but I think it's a most unfitting description. The reason for that description is an understanding of Christ's return. I think if we take these words at face value, they are words of conquest. He is going to come and he is going to rule and he will put down all rebellion. He came quietly once. He will not come quietly the next time. In verse 17, we ask the question, who is going to die and why? And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Any rebel against Christ will fall. Verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them 
were thrown alive into the fire, fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Having destroyed the earthly armies that oppose him, Jesus will take up his seat on David's throne and he will rule for a thousand years from Jerusalem. Revelation 20 and verse 2. Revelation 20 and verse 4. Then at the end of that time, Satan will be released to deceive the nations. And then God will at last put every enemy under Christ's feet, including death itself. Revelation 20 and verse 14. Then, as 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, the end will come. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So I say to you, Christian, grasp it with your mind and let it stir your soul. Hear it again. Jesus Christ reigns over all creation from heaven's throne. Jesus Christ is actively subduing his enemies. Jesus Christ will return to rule from David's throne over the nations of the earth for a thousand years, and in the end, Jesus Christ will fully and completely banish every enemy of God from this earth, including Satan and death itself. Christian, these are not trivial points. These truths are vital to the joy and the stability of your soul. There are a million things God does not tell us about reality and about the future in His Word, but He reveals these truths to us because they are absolutely necessary for our sanctification. If I could say it real crassly, they're more important than we think. They're more important than we naturally think. The Apostle John makes the connection between these truths, this truth of the coming of Jesus and our own personal walk with God. And I'd like us to turn there and focus on that in 1 John chapter 3. This truth matters. It is vital. John says in 1 John 3 and verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Read and worship. And that is what we are. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. He says it again. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. John's saying the same thing we've been reading, isn't he? Jesus will come. He rose from the dead, first fruits. He will come back and he will renew his people. He will give them resurrection life. That's coming. We will be like him. We shall see him as he is. Now notice what he says in verse 3. So what? Just trivia? No. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
You have this hope in Christ. It's purifying to the soul. You become like Jesus when you look to Jesus. You remember Luke 2, and there was the old Simeon, we assume old, but he was a righteous and devout man. And that phrase said in Luke 2, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Of Anna, who was old, it says, a devout woman looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. That's no mistake. There is a direct connection between holy living and looking to the return of Jesus Christ. Christian, are you drifting spiritually? Are you spinning your wheels? Are you disoriented? Are you spiritually discouraged? Does it seem that there's no wind in your spiritual sails? Let me ask you a question. I would suspect that you would agree with me that your life is not oriented toward the triumphant return of Jesus Christ. In fact, you may have not even thought of that point this week. Not once. Are you with me? Whoever you are, as I preach to my own soul and heart, where there is spiritual discouragement, it is often connected to a focus that fails to see the return of Jesus Christ. We need two points of orientation in our lives to guide us home. The first point of orientation looks backward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We stake our identity and our hope on the gospel as we look backwards in time. History is essential. We look to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I would encourage you, if you're in a place of spiritual depression, focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. You must. Do not grow accustomed to what John has just said. We are the children of God. We are his children because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection power. Don't get used to forgiveness, to your position as a child of God. We look back. That's our point of orientation. But we need a point of orientation that's also future. We look back to the gospel, we look back to the cross of Christ, but secondly, we must look forward to our approaching meeting with Jesus. It's getting closer and closer. As we age, as we move forward into history, His coming gets closer in time. And these two orientation points put everything in perspective and purify our souls we drift and we wander and we stumble spiritually when our orientation point is our own navel. When this life and its possessions and its goals and its experiences, this life consuming our focus turns us down. It discourages us. It keeps us from growing. We get so oriented to the screen and we get so oriented to the green. We get so oriented to the things of this life and this earth. The entertainment, the way people think about us, and all of it's about this life. That's a place of utter discouragement. You can't live that way as a Christian. You can get by as an unbeliever because you're not under satanic attack in the same way. Satan prods his children along and wants to make life as comfortable as he can while he destroys it. 
But a Christian doesn't live in that world. We are under the direct assault of the demonic realm because he wants to take us down. If our orientation is on his world, then we stand on his terms and we are under an assault we cannot withstand. We need to orient backwards to the cross of Jesus Christ and we need to orient forwards to the return of our Savior and Lord and that needs to consume our life focus and purpose. Talk to me. Set me straight. But I think you would think and agree with me in your life that at those times when we get so discouraged and so far from God, we are centered on the things of this world. And we have forgotten that Jesus is coming again. As Simeon and Anna awaited the coming Christ at his first coming, they were purified by their focus. We need the purifying focus of the coming of Jesus Christ. Light a candle in your home. Light a candle in your heart and never let it go out. Jesus is coming back. And may we be among those who are waiting as he does. We need to orient our soul to these moorings. Whether we meet Christ in the rapture of the church, of which we have not spoken at all today, or in death, it is his ultimate triumph that should hold our attention and color all that takes place in this world for us as his people. All I'm saying is said so clearly by the Apostle Paul. Will you just meditate and listen as he writes to the Corinthians, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Listen to it. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. That focus, that orientation must dominate our thinking. We have got to hold to those orientation points, the gospel in the past, the coming of Christ in the future, that by these two points of orientation we are purified and we endure until the coming of Christ. Be it the rapture, be it death, whatever it would be for us, we hold on to these truths. Set your hearts on things above. May it be. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we fall so very far short. We thank you for the rebuke of your word, how we need it in a materialistic, entertainment-saturated, self-oriented, self-loving world. We need it, Father, and I thank you for this word from your truth. Father, may we apply it. May we live it. We pray for your return. We pray for the day 
though we won't live to see it in this life, the day when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father. We long, Lord, to be those who see it in the next and participate in it. We thank you for the revelation of what Jesus is doing, of his reigning power, and of his coming kingdom. And I pray, God, that as we await that return, that we would orient our lives to the gospel and to that return, and that it would change us. I know that I pray, Father, for people who are struggling with sin, as I struggle with sin, as we struggle with an orientation toward this world. I pray, God, whatever trial, whatever struggle is taking place in the heart of your people, that you would help us now to make a change. Sever the root of sin. May we squash it. May we, by faith, trust your provision and walk away. Grant us that faith and that sanctifying grace. For any who know not Christ the Savior, I pray, dear God, that you would put fear in their heart. That they would understand that Jesus is coming back. And that every knee will bow in submission to his lordship. And I pray, dear God, that anyone who knows not Christ as Savior would leave their rebellion by simple faith in Jesus as Savior. Help them to see that he has paid the penalty of sin. Help them, God, to call upon your enabling grace to embrace this forgiveness. We pray this because we must. We have no hope without your power. Change us as your people and bring others into your saving grace, I pray. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.